Let's pray together. Father, there are those here today who are facing some real crises and challenges in their lives. And we've been singing, Lord, that your, your power and your presence, the promises of your word are greater than any challenge that we face. So we rest in you today. I pray that you would encourage all of us this morning to, to trust you more and to rely upon you. And we pray that you'd speak to us and encourage us today. Um, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If you have your Bible, I invite you to open with me to the book of Psalms, uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm 90, and uh, we're going to read there. That'll be our text today. There's 17 verses, Psalm 90, and if you would, keep your place in Psalm 90, and uh, also turn with me over to the book of Numbers, chapter 20, and uh, we'll look at uh, some a uh, couple of things there in Numbers chapter 20. Over the last couple of weeks, our focus has been on prayer. I hope that it uh, is encouraging you to, uh, to be uh, more disciplined in prayer. And uh, we've been looking for the last couple of weeks from Luke's gospel where Jesus asks his disciples, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And so the last couple of weeks have primarily consisted of some instruction on how to pray, but this message this morning moves away from instruction, away from how to pray to an actual prayer uh, that's recorded in the text. If you'll notice in your Bible, in Psalm 90, there should be a heading there uh, that's been inserted and should say something like... Uh, uh, that this is the prayer of Moses, the man of God. The Holy Spirit inspires Moses to write this prayer out and uh, actually to put his prayer into print. Uh, do any of you ever write out your prayers? Uh, I have a little prayer journal that I keep on my desk and I, I write out prayers, prayers for myself and make notes and scriptures alongside of those on how God... I need to be praying for myself and write out prayers and thoughts regarding my family and my church family and my health and my finances and just, just praying over everything in my life. The Holy Spirit writes, moves a, to, on Moses to write this out, and I'm glad he did because it's a blessing to us to, uh, to read and study this prayer. I believe that you and I learn to pray from, first of all, from Scripture uh, we develop the mind of Christ as we abide in his word, certainly guides us into to prayer to help us to understand more about God's will as we pray. Second, we learn to pray from actually praying. The Holy Spirit bears witness with us and places burdens and certain brings certain ideas and thoughts as we pray. We third, also learn to pray from listening to others. Many of you probably grew up uh, in a Christian home and perhaps heard your mother praying, your father praying, you heard other people praying, and you learned to pray from listening to them praying. And then fourth, we learned to pray from praying with others. Now, some of you may say, well, I'm not really comfortable praying with others. And well, that's 
you're not alone. That's understandable because um, prayer is not, uh, it's not natural. Uh, it's not according to the flesh. Your flesh is never going to lead you to pray, but it's a work of the spirit and it's a spiritual discipline and we grow in that just like we do in other areas as we pray. Read, read with me from Psalm 90, starting from the first verse to this prayer of Moses, this man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them or us away like a flood. They, we are like asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it, the grass flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. We have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength, they are 80 years. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. Then he concludes, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us. The years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Lord, bless your word. The background from this text, from Moses being inspired by God's spirit to write this leader of the nation of Israel, the background is he's recognizing that he's grown old. He's aware that he's become frail and aware of his mortality. The historical setting for this prayer emerges from Numbers chapter 20, and so if you'll go over there and keep your place here in Psalm 90 because we're going to come back and work through this text. But I want to share some things from Numbers chapter 20. This is the background. This is the setting for him writing the 90th Psalm. Did you know that, some of you may not even knew that, know that Moses wrote some of the Psalms, but also that 
many of the Psalms have a story behind them. And this is the story behind Moses' prayer in the 90th Psalm. In Numbers chapter 20, it begins in the first verse and it says that Moses' sister, Miriam, dies. She dies. They're out in the wilderness. They're out of Egypt, journeying. Do you remember Miriam back in the book of Exodus when uh, Moses' life is being saved and his mother, Jochebed, puts him in that little ark and sets him on the bank of the river, the Nile River. And then you remember, remember Pharaoh's daughter finds the infant and it's Miriam who is there. Moses' sister, his older sister. So here, here he is losing Miriam. It's described in Numbers chapter 20. And then in Numbers chapter 20, something else happens. While they're in the wilderness on their journey, um, 30 days into it, the Bible says in Numbers chapter 20 that the, the people are without water and so the heat and the sun begins to press upon them. They're thirsty and so they begin to turn on Moses. Begin to complain. The Bible says they contend against Moses and blame him. Well, you've brought us out here to die. All oh, that we were back in Egypt and, and the burden's pretty heavy. And so the Bible says that Moses and Arian, they go into the tent of meeting and they fall on their faces before God and they pray. Look at verse 6. They fall on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So, Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock. He struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me, to reverence me, to hold me in awe in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. What is God saying there? Because you failed to set a godly example because you failed as the leader to reverence me and to hallow me in the eyes of my people. And instead of staining control and speaking to the rock in your anger, you struck the rock repeatedly. You will not lead this group of people into the promised land. He loses his sister Miriam and now he becomes aware that his life is come to its close. He too is facing death. And then at the end of the chapter, his brother Aaron dies as well. That's the background to the 90th Psalm. Moses, this godly man, this leader, begins to face 
the end of his life. He's grown old. He's grown frail. It's almost over. He loses his sister. He loses his brother Arian, Aaron, and now he is told by the Lord that his time has come to a close as well. Jesus knew that he was facing his death. Three multiple times in the Gospels, he begins to tell his disciples very soon, I'm going away. The time of my departure is also at at hand. Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible says of Jesus facing his death that he set his face towards Jerusalem with joy. Why joy? He goes on to say that he faced his death, was heading towards Jerusalem with joy the joy of knowing that he was pleasing the Father. The Apostle Paul also knew that his death was upon him. In 2 Timothy 4, it says, He faced it with confidence and peace, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, for the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but to all who have loved or longed for his appearing. So facing his death, knowing that it was imminent under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, Losing his sister, losing his brother, he pens this prayer. That's the background. And I want you to notice back in Psalm 90 how he begins this prayer. In the first six verses, he focuses on God. And he specifically prays, God, you are eternal. Nothing like us. The rationale is described in verse 2. This is Moses praying. Before the mountains were ever brought forth, you were God. Before you formed the earth and the world, you were God. And his conclusion is, Lord, you are from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's how he begins his prayer with a focus on the Lord. You were God. You are God and you will be God from everlasting to everlasting. God, you're the eternal creator of all things. You are the God who is and was and shall always be. The God without beginning, the God without any end. And he prays, God, you're not like me. (laughs) I've become old grown old and frail and weak and the time of my departure is at hand, but you are eternal. God, from everlasting to everlasting. And he prays and recognizes and confesses, God, you do not measure time like us. He describes it, God, because you are eternal. Notice in verse four, he says, the passing of a thousand years in your sight is like or is the same as today turning into yesterday for us. Think about that. God's not like us, is he? He's eternal. He doesn't measure time the way that you and I measure time. Think about his description in verse 4. That means 365 days in one year. Therefore, in a 1,000 years, some of you are pretty good at math, That's 365,000 days 
in a thousand years. Moses prays, God, I understand that one day with you is no different than 365,000 days. And just to kind of help put that into perspective, if God is gracious to you and perhaps has been gracious to you and you've reached the age of 80 or maybe you're past the age of 80, 80 years is approximately 30,000 days. <laughs> Start thinking about this a little bit. At my age, I've already burned up 22,000. And if, I'm, if God is gracious enough to me and I make it to 80, that means 74% of my days are gone. It's kind of what Moses is praying. That's what he's thinking about. Lord, you're not like me. I've lost my sister. She's gone. I've lost my brother Aaron. He's gone. I'm frail. I've grown old. My departure is at hand as well. And in verse 3, Moses begins to describe how temporary our lives are. He says, you turn men, you turn women to destruction. You say, return, return. It's a reference to returning to the dust. The idea is God certainly is a God of holiness and he's sacred and he's pure. And during the time of that exodus, that 40 years of wilderness wanderings, Moses saw firsthand God's righteous judgment come upon those people and in his holy wrath bringing forth destruction upon sin. Do you remember? Remember Moses saw an entire generation die in the sands, in the wilderness as a result of God's righteous wrath and judgment upon their sin. He goes on to pray in verse 5 and 6. He says our lives are carried away. Our lives are like a flood. That means our lives are removed. They are washed and carried away like the waters of a great flood. He says the brevity of life, he compares it to sleep. What time did you go to bed last night? Some of you who are with the disciple now, probably not as early as you would have liked. Our life is like a sleep. You ever wake up some mornings and you think, oh, if only there was more, <laughs> a little more sleep. If only I'd gone to bed a little earlier, slept a little more soundly. Life is like a sleep. He confesses, God, at your word, all men, all women, all of us return to the dust. God, you're eternal. You're not like us. And he says the end of the matter is not only is our life like sleep, passes quickly, he also compares our lives to grass. Look at verse 6. He says, in the morning grass flourishes, it grows, and by evening it withers and is mowed down. If you fertilize your yard in the spring, with all the moisture and humidity and the temperature starting to warm and not to be overly hot yet, it'll grow and and flourish and get thick and lush very quickly. It's amazing. It's, it's almost like you can't keep it mowed fast enough. And then what happens? Summer sets in, the sun comes out, the heat bears upon it, the ground begins to dry, and that growth slowly begins to 
to be the fade, and then the fall comes, and the temperature's cool, and the growth stops, and soon the grass withers and is cut down. He's describing his life. That's Moses' recognition. God, my family is dying away. I'm becoming old and frail. I'm beginning to wither, soon to return to the dust. But God, you're eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, you're not like us. The passing of a thousand years is no different to you than the watch of the night. For the last 40 years of Moses' life, he along with two million people tromping through the sand of the Sinai Peninsula, going in circles, out in the desert, in the middle of nowhere with the elements of the sun beating upon them by the day and the winds and the sand at night. In that area, temperatures in the evening would get down into the 40s and 50s. Pretty cool. During those 40 years, there was this need for refuge. He says, Lord, we've needed shelter the shelter of our tents. We've needed the protection from our army. But more than any of that, he prays, Lord, you, and the word is Adonai, sovereign God, you are our dwelling place. You are our refuge. And all of our generations have found shelter and protection in you. That's in verse 1. Listen, your home where you live It may not be in the area of town that you would prefer. And the home where you live may be in need of some repairs, maybe some new paint, some new flooring, maybe some new furnishings are overdue and along with some TLC on the outside. But listen, it's not a tent in the desert. (laughs) The perspective here is the shelter. Our shelter, our security is in the Lord. Lord, you, you are our refuge. And he confesses, you're the creator from everlasting to everlasting. We're frail, temporary, like sleep, like grass, returning to the dust. That's the reality of what he's describing. All of us, this is difficult to talk about, it's not the most cheery subject in the world, but all of us here this morning are going to die. (laughs) Turn to someone and say, you're going to (laughs) die. It's pretty certain. It's an appointment Hebrews 9 describes, and for most of us, it arrives sooner than we can imagine. Does that make you... The thought of hearing someone say, you're going to die, and thinking about your death, does that make you uncomfortable? (laughs) I'm aware it's an unpleasant subject to many people. I've known people who have actually been in the church. They'll never go to hospitals. They won't go to nursing homes. They don't attend funerals. They don't like to be faced with the reality of death. I've known couples that never take their kids to a funeral home. They never want them to be exposed to that. They're just uncomfortable with the subject of death. However, However unpleasant it might be, it's real, and you and I are the only creatures that know we're going to die. Many try not to think about it. Many don't want to talk about it. But reason tells us we're going to die. Experience tells us we're going to die. 
And if you are not prepared to die, then you are not really prepared to live. No man is ready for life until he is no longer afraid of death. That's the message. That's the prayer. Moses is confessing that. You're eternal from everlasting to everlasting. God, you will always be. You're my dwelling place. Our refuge is in you. Lord, I'm, we're nothing like you. Frail, weak, losing our loved ones. The time of our departure is near. That's the recognition of his prayer. He's talking to the Lord. And then second, I want you to notice the transparency and the further honesty of this prayer. He says this, God, you know that we're all so sinful. I want you to walk through this description as of our sinfulness that he puts to, to paper as God's spirit leads him. In verse 10, he describes life. He says, all of our days, verse 10, all of our days, if we live to be 70 or if we're, we've been blessed and we're given strength to possibly live to 80, then he says, what can we boast of? Or what can we be sure of if we live to be 70 or 80 or even beyond that? He says, this is what we know for sure, that our years will be full of labor and sorrow. Our years will be full of work and pain, kind of like Sounds like Ecclesiastes in the Song of Solomon. And he goes on in verse 8, or back up, and he says, as we live and we go through labor and sorrow, all of our iniquities, God, are set before you. All of them are plain to see. He says in verse 8, God, even our secret sins. Do you have any secret sins? I'm a... I'm pretty sure that most all of us do. Secret sins that no one else knows about. But he says, our, even our secret sins are in light, in the light of your countenance. That means, God, everything I say, everything I think, everything I do, it's all open. It's clearly visible, seen, known by you. All of it. So the point is, verse 9, all of our days, each of them pass before you. you. You know all of our sins. And then he describes God's response to sin. It's kind of summarized in verse 7 and 11. By the way, these verses are just kind of all out of order when you, when you try to make sense of them. He's just talking to the Lord. But in verses 7 and 11, there's kind of this summary. He says, your anger is powerful. Your anger consumes us. Your wrath is to be feared. Your wrath terrifies us. Therefore, this is how every day is to be lived. All of them with a keen awareness, God, of your anger and your wrath. And they end. And when they end, we fly away. Verse 10. I've kind of wondered if that's where, you know that song we sing? Some glad morning when this life is o'er. What? I'll fly away. I wonder if that came from the 90th Psalm from Moses. That's the prayer. Open, honest. God, you're eternal, everlasting to everlasting. You're not like me. My life is so temporary. God, you're never in a hurry. All time is in your hands. All time is under your control. And me, well, it, I just feel like my life is like grass. 
It's like a watch in the night. Yes, life has been good, but it's also been full of work and some sorrow, and now I've grown old and frail. I'm soon to fly away. But Lord, you're, you're my, you're, you're our dwelling place. Our refuge, our strength has been in you. I acknowledge all of my sins before you, God. There's no need to try to hide anything from you. And so this is the conclusion. What does Moses pray in light of all of that? Let me share with you some things in closing, just real practical things. They're in the text, but this is what he prays. First, he says, what can we do? Notice verse 12, Lord, therefore teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. That we, he says that we may gain a heart or a mind of understanding. Most of us are more intentional about numbering other things than our, we are about numbering our days. We number things like what's in our bank account. We number investments. We number the sporting record of our favorite team. We number our GPAs. We number things. I wonder how often we really take inventory and stock and number our days. In other words, we we keep up with what we care about. We keep up with what's important to us. We take inventory of things that matter, but take life for granted. And certainly the one who has given us life, we take for granted. The prayer is God give us wisdom to make our days count, to stop wasting time. You remember Paul writing to the Ephesians in chapter 5? He says, don't waste time, redeem it. Make the most of every day. That means for you and I to ask ourselves some questions on a regular basis. What did I do today? What did I accomplish today that matters, that has some eternal value? What did, I, what did I do today for my family? What did I do with my family that has eternal value? Did I help anyone today at work? Did I point them to the cross? Did I witness to anyone? Did I share Christ's love with anyone? Did I encourage anyone today that I work with? Did I learn anything more about God today? Have I grown in his word today? Have my, has my understanding of his kingdom, of his rule and reign and his righteousness in my life, has it increased? He says, Lord, he prays, teach us to number our days, to invest our days. Second, he says in verse 13 and 14, teach us to recognize your love and mercy, to grow to understand your grace. The Bible says that it's God's grace that leads us to repentance, the kindness of his grace. And so he prays, Lord, teach us to see it early, early. Do you know someone who came to faith in Christ late in life? Who took a long time before they really begin to grasp 
God's grace towards them. John 3.16, for God so graces, so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own grace, his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great grace, his love for us with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together in Christ Jesus and saved us by his grace. Grace is not easy to understand. I would confess to you that it took me a long time to understand being saved by grace because my natural inclination was to think everything about my relationship with God is performance-based. God, I sinned, so you're not going to hear me anymore when I pray. God, I said something I shouldn't have said, and God, so this is going to no longer have any boldness or confidence with you, and so I need to do better. I'm going to be better, and it was performance-based, and it took me a while to understand that it's really all about his grace, and it's his grace that continues to cause us to grow stronger in faith, understanding that. Amazing grace. We sing in how sweet the sound. We don't sing amazing performance, <laughs> but amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a sinner, a wretch like me. And think about this, and when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days in eternity, no less days to sing his praise than when we just begun. Lord, my refuge is in you. It's eternal. It's rest in you. Third, he says, God, teach us, teach us to worship. Think of verse 14 and 15, in the midst of affliction and evil, God, teach us to worship. Let me ask you, when something happens tomorrow and you get some bad news at work or a, a phone call or someone says something to you and someone treats you in a way that's unfair, unkind, or something hurts or something happens tomorrow and takes the wind out of your sails and your husband doesn't do this and says this and she doesn't do it. Let me ask you, is your, what, do, what will be your first response? God, teach us to stay calm and to be worshipers, to worship you. Listen, that, that's not, that desire, that thought, that response is not going to come from the flesh, but it comes from God's spirit bearing witness with us that we can worship in the midst of affliction. He says, God, make us glad. It's easy to be glad when everything's going well, but what about when things are not going well? God, teach me to be glad, to rejoice, and to be glad all of my days. You remember the apostle Paul under house arrest, writing to the Philippians, uncertain about his future? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. 
And I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Why? For the Lord is near to worship. We sing it. You remember, we sing that, it goes back a few years, that little song, we rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And sometimes we'd get one group singing a first part and the other group would come back later and there was a round to that. Do you remember singing that? Listen, that kind of joy, that kind of worship flows from the Holy Spirit. You remember the fruit of the Spirit is love and what? Joy, peace, even in difficult circumstances. Do you know what makes dynamic corporate worship on Sunday morning? You say, yeah, when the sermon's not too long. Makes it pretty, pretty awesome. What makes dynamic corporate worship? It's one, probably the most, one of the most important things we do as the body of Christ. We gather together and we come and worship. And I'm so thankful for Don and this worship team and musicians. God has blessed us as a church. But you know what makes dynamic corporate worship on a Sunday morning? It's much bigger than me. It's much bigger than Don and the musicians and the worship team. It's bigger than the lighting and the sound and all the other things the thing that makes dynamic, dynamic worship is you, the worshipers. I shared with somebody this week, actually with staff, one of the, some of the most powerful worship services I've ever been in have been in prison. Not, when I, not because I was there. I mean, I was there. Did he have some other kind of life that kind of didn't come out in the references when we were checking him out? But going in for worship services with inmates in a prison facility. Not great musicians, not comfortable pews, not good lighting. But some of those brothers in there, they'd learn to find refuge in the Lord. And even in a prison cell, they'd learn to worship the Lord. Corporate worship is made dynamic by the worshipers. The quality of your worship life Monday through Saturday will determine the quality of your worship experience on Sunday morning. Fourth, let me hurry. He says in verse 16, teach us to recognize you at work. Help us, God, to see you at work, to recognize you at work around us. God's at work calling us, convicting us, drawing us. God desires to work through you. He saved you. He wants to work through you to be an instrument of blessing to others and to, for you to be an instrument that brings him glory. God, give us eyes to see you work. Fifth, God teaches to serve you. That's his prayer in verse 17. Let me ask you, do you consider it a blessing to serve the Lord? What an honor, what a privilege that God would save us and use us to represent him the God of all creation of the universe. He's given all of us some spiritual gifts, talents and abilities. All of it can be used for his service. Let me read a passage of scripture very quickly. You know this. It's from Matthew 25. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to see me. 
Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And Jesus says to them, Assuredly, I tell you the truth. Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You see, learning to serve God in this brief life with all of its hardships is really about serving the Lord and serving other people. How do you serve the Lord? By serving people. By touching people's lives, affecting people's lives. Let me say the best place to start, where? It's in your own home. To serve, my, to serve my spouse, even when she doesn't deserve it, to serve me when I don't deserve it, to serve the kids, starts right there. Are you serving? Are you, you remember Jesus, Mark 10, theme of the gospel, Mark, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Who are you serving? You'll have an opportunity this week. You'll have an opportunity this week in your family, at work. You'll have an opportunity here this week, the night to shine, to serve families, to serve people. And then he closes in verse 16. God, teach, and this is so good, God, teach our children to bring you glory. Teach our kids, teach our grandkids, God. This is the prayer, that they will bring you glory. Praise that they would see it that begins today by us coming to know who Jesus is. And so learning about the Lord Jesus Christ early, being taught by him, it leads to conversion. Let me close. Hillcrest, the beloved, let's be a prayerful people. Let's let our lives be characterized by prayer and worship. Let's pray that God would teach us to invest our days, to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve, to serve people, to make disciples, to witness, and for our children, our kids, to bring him glory. And let's do all that together. Let's do it in unity. I'm going to ask that you bow with me in prayer as Don and musicians come, as our deacons come to the table. Let's pray and worship and serve. Let's reach others. And let's do it together in unity and love. The gospel would be what binds us together. It's what permeates all of our relationships. Father, we thank you today for your presence, your word, your spirit. We thank you for the blessing to be able to worship you, to praise you the privilege of coming before your throne of grace in prayer. Bear witness with us. And Father, as we come to 
Your table this morning, we're reminded of the body and the blood of Christ. For his service unto you that led him to the cross to sacrifice his own flesh, even to death. We thank you for the cross and for his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we come today, we come, Lord, with deep gratitude for who you are and what you've done for us. And we pray that as we are mindful of the gospel, that God, we'd live the gospel every day of our lives. So we make this our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.